0: show you
1: a better way you don't have to be another face Well, hi folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, July the 6th, 2022. This is episode 3,119. Today's episode is called Self-Reliance through financial independence, and we're actually going to break it down to self-reliance and self-sufficiency through financial independence, but that's a bit of a long, clunky headline, so I dropped one, a couple words out of the headline. Anyway, we're going to have a special guest for this. Uh, this is going to be uh, with Josh Irvine. Now, he's an interesting dude. He is, like, weeks away from finally separating from the military. He's a pilot in the military. Uh, he has lived his whole life. Four kids, wife, and him with one income since he's joined the military. So we're talking 20 years now. In that 20-year period of time, they've built enough passive income that even if he didn't have a military retirement, they're good. He retires in a couple weeks, and they're good. Plus, he's got his military retirement. They are going to embark on a journey of discovery after that. That's really not what we're here to talk about, but it's important to know that. One income, for kids. And was able to do this. He was going to talk to us about the strategy, the tactics, and the techniques that he used to accomplish this. And I know I said he's in the Army, or I'm sorry, the Air Force, for 10 years, or 20 years. But he did this in 10. It was about 10 years ago that he had a wake-up call. And that wake-up call had a few different things that went on into it. One was a pretty nasty accident you'll hear about. Another was... Uh, listening to a crazy redneck duck farmer on a podcast and a bunch of other podcasts and things like that. And he just decided, I'm going to do this. And uh, it's a really great discussion because, as he puts it, if a dude like me can do it, then anybody can do it. And, you know, I know that when you tune into the Survival Podcast, if you're new around here, uh, you're looking for food source. We do that. You're looking for homesteading. We do that. You look for animal husbandry. We do that. You look for tactics and guns and stuff like that. We do that. But the reality is we all, we are all dependent one way or another on our wealth. And a big part of our wealth is some form of money and income. And we're going to address that today and how it applies to self-reliance and self-sufficiency, independence, and liberty. Uh, And we're going to talk about it from from a cash flow standpoint, too. There's only so much income in, and we have more control over the income out. That's a big part of it, at least in the beginning. Viewing life through the concept of options. I, I realized when talking to Josh today, Like when I was 20, I didn't have a lot of options. If I needed a car, I needed a car. I could buy the car that I could afford. That was my option. I rented an apartment because I couldn't buy a house. Nobody, nobody would give me a mortgage. Actually, they would have given me a mortgage when I was 21. I got out of the military because I could have got a VA mortgage, but I, I wouldn't have been able to afford the mortgage, and I knew it. So I had one option, rent an apartment with a roommate. Now my housing situation is, what do I want? An option is the ability to do a thing but not the obligation to do it. The more wealth you have, the more options you have, whether it's something analogous to a, you know, an option to purchase a stock or a piece of real estate or just an option in life. Great discussion. We'll have it in just a second with uh, our special guest today. Uh, I do want to mention our two sponsors of the day. Start9.com gives you options like we were just talking about, like the options to own your own data, to have true personal digital sovereignty, to do things like run your own Bitcoin node or your own Lightning node to keep complete control with access from anywhere of all your images and your files, to have completely, and I mean completely, end-to-end, 100% cryptographic communications with your family and friends, like where you could literally say, hey, CIA, see that shit? That's what we're doing. Good luck. And they can't do anything about it. You may not need it, but you should have it anyway because you don't know if you need it because what you might not need it for today, you might need it for 10 years from now and they're keeping a record and a personal dossier on everything and everyone. Start9 makes you safer and more secure and more private in all your digital activities. And the discount they give you is so badass. It's so awesome. It pays for your entire MSB if you're an MSB member in one purchase. you got to check them out today. They're at Start9.com. And if you're going to buy something from Start9 and you're not a member of my support brigade and you don't join before you buy from Start9... You shouldn't even listen to the show. I don't mean the whole show. I mean this episode because it's about money and you hate money. You don't do negative things with money. You just don't. It doesn't make sense. Next up today, speaking of money, how about the Wealthsteading Podcast at Wealthsteading.com with John Pagliano. John is an incredible investment manager. He is also a close personal friend to the Spirico family. Long-term member of the TSP community. goes all the way back to when I spoke at an event in 2012 and he came there to meet me. And when he told me the story, I'm like, yeah, I do remember meeting you that long ago. But uh, he kind of came into the fold and, and, and into the public about 2014. He's been at all the workshops here at my house ever since, except the one where he was sick and he didn't want to get anybody else sick. He's an awesome guy. He's really switched on with money. And if you want to take what you hear today to an even higher level, you need to tune in to the Wealth Steading podcast at wealthsteading.com. With that, let's go ahead and get our special guests on. And we are live and today we are with uh, Joshua Irvine and we're going to be talking about self-sufficiency and self-reliance through financial independence. Uh, before we start our combo, just my disclaimer is always because the scammers are at it more than ever. If you see anything in the comments below that says hit me up on WhatsApp or anything like that, folks, do not follow it. It is not me. I don't care if it has my logo. The scammers are out. I will never ask you for personal contact in the comments a video here on YouTube or anywhere else. With that, hey, hey, Josh, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast.
2: Hey, Jack. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm excited to be here today and have this conversation with you. So the topic, particularly financial independence, is one I'm very passionate about. Um, and it's not uh, something you can easily talk to folks about because it seems like a little pretentious. But in a forum like this, we can discuss it and you know, maybe somebody else gets something out of it, which would be great. Yeah, I mean, I always,
1: it's self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty are the four pillars of the survival podcast. And independence takes many forms. And if you don't have financial independence, you probably don't have independence, right? Yeah. I mean, and there's various ways to do it. You can do it through accumulation of money and passive income. You can do it through cutting your expenses. But one way or another, it has to be part of your life, or you don't have independence. Before yeah. we dive headlong into that, though, can you give us kind of What's your background, man? Take us it, like you're, you're hanging out, spacing out in high school or something,
2: and and, and what have you done professionally, and, and, and yes, how sure. does it lead to where you are now? Yeah, no problem. Um, and the bio is kind of central to the topic, so I'll, I'll go a little bit in depth. And if it goes too far, just cut me off. But, uh, again, it's kind of wrapped up in the topic. But, you know, starting off as a young guy, I kind of had divergent interests, I might say. So, uh, on the one hand, fitness, outdoors uh, adventure, end up joining the military. There's that side. And then the other side, which is a very kind of bookish, uh, reading all the time. Uh, I got a lot of crap from uh, my brother for sitting at Barnes and Noble on a Saturday all day long, multiple times, uh, reading the financial section. Um, so these kind of two divergent interests, um, were, were present from a young age. So, I mean, even with the bookishness is just one example. Uh, when I was dating my wife years ago before I got married, uh, she wanted to go out and see a movie. I'm not huge into movies. Um, and I actually asked or proposed, Hey, why don't I just bring this book I'm reading? I think it was Warren Buffett making of an American capitalist, you know, and I'll just read it because what does it matter? You're watching the movie. I'm reading the book. So kind of the nerdy side of me there, but, um, so that was a big passion of mine when I was high school age. Uh, and then going into college, I wanted to actually join the Marine Corps and go grunt around. That was, that was the first goal. Uh, was homeschooled through junior high and high school. And at the time it was a little bit less common than it is today. Um, and so the Marine Corps recruiter kind of looked at me sideways, uh, and said, ah, I don't really know. Um, <laughs> you know, we'll think about that or go get your GD or whatever he, you know, he wanted me to do. Um, yeah. so I kind of diverted off that thought, well, I'll take class at the community college. Throughout that time at the community college, I found ROTC, it was Air Force in this case, and uh with good grades, they basically picked me up, scholarship, the whole thing. And uh being type A, the thing to do if you were in the Air Force was to be a pilot. So if you're a guy and you were, you know, wanting to be the top of the stack, that's what you wanted to do. So a little bit of diversion there um eventually took me into uh the Air Force as a pilot. And I would say for a good ten years, so from you know twenty-ish all the way till around 30ish, uh, it was just extremely busy. Um, so if you're a military pilot, you know you're spending 12 or 13 hours a day, you know working all the time. You've got a job on the side. You come home at night, you study. Uh, they were encouraging us to get a master's degree, so I was working on the master's degree on the weekends and nights. Uh, I had some hobbies like triathlon that took up a lot of extra time. And so basically, with the deployments and everything, it was just kind of go, 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 go. Um, and at that point, I sort of lost track of the the financial stuff that I really enjoyed. It kind of became, I guess you could call a normie. So a little bit of investing in an IRA, um, otherwise a small savings and just not really thinking about it. Always looking at that five meter target, you know, right, right in front of me. Um, the thing that kind of arrested me is uh, I come back from a deployment uh, in Afghanistan and I was out cycling, which is something I do quite a bit of. We could talk more about. And biking is a low impact sport. That's what they always say. It's low impact until you get T boned by a car at 45 miles an hour. And then it becomes yeah. very high impact. Yeah. So I get hit by this car and I find myself laying on my back and my right knee is, you know, about six inches in the wrong position from where it should be. Uh, and the femur's broken in multiple spots. And I'm thinking, this is not good. So, uh, you know, mixed blessing. What it did was it laid a guy who was very driven and very busy on his back for a couple of months and a couple of surgeries. And it was that time that really brought me back to that original kind of passion um, over finance, financial independence, this kind of stuff. Uh, and one of the things that came out of it was, you know, I got this small amount of money from my insurance uh, and it wasn't anything huge, uh, but it was more than just the, you know, a paycheck that you would get at the end of the month type thing. And I remember yeah. my wife and I thinking, well, we don't want to screw this up because you hear about people who win the lottery. And this is in no way winning the lottery is a small amount of money. But you hear about people who just blow money. And so it got me to thinking about, well, how much money would pass through my hands over just a 20 year career in the military? And that's not hard to calculate. The pay tables are out there. So you yeah. got a pay table, throw it into Excel. I look at it and I think, man, pretty easily here in the next, you know, over the course of 20 years, about one point two million dollars will pass through my hands. But at the end of that, what do you have to show for it? Um, You know, if you retire, maybe a pension, but what's really left? And so it kind of got me thinking again about these things like, well, what do I really want to do and where do I want to go? There were a couple of authors I was reading at the time, like Nassim Taleb, and one of his concepts about fragility really impacted me, which we could talk about later. Um, But in essence, that first step of changing course for me toward financial independence um, was the idea of, I want to pay off my house. Um, and so that, that sounds maybe a little screwy. Why would you want to pay off your house? And I remember proposing the idea to my wife while we were driving somewhere. And she's like, okay, we're at year one on a 30-year mortgage, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Why would we do that? Who does that? You know, it just seems kind of ridiculous. But my thinking at the time, expense, just a mortgage. You know, for most people uh, housing, transportation, and food. Those are really the big expenses. So if I take that housing expense and I eliminate it, you know, how much more stable does that make me if I have a job loss or something else? Um, and so eventually she kind of bought onto the idea. Um, we ended up moving to a different location, renting that house and basically paying almost two mortgage checks plus a bit with the goal of paying the house off within around about seven years we ended up getting pretty aggressive about it using pay raises and whatnot. And we paid that first house off in, I believe it was four and a half years from the time we set that goal. Um, and so from that point,
1: it's funny we- what goals do, isn't it? It is. It is. Like it sounds like a big deal, but almost everybody
2: that puts a goal up like that hits it. Yeah. And the neat thing about it too, was that, you know, even my wife has talked about how it changed her perspective. So it used to be if she went to the target or something like that, She'd come away with three bags of crap she didn't need, but she felt, you know, rewarded by it or whatever. And uh, anymore, like, she just doesn't feel that way. She's like, I don't want the stuff. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to spend the money. You know, obviously, we still spend money and get things like normal people. But, you know, her habits through the course of this changed and her perspective changed. I think one of the biggest things that, that got us on the same page, which is very important if you're going to go on this goal as a married couple or this journey but one of the things that got us on the same page is we started to see that, you know, if we eliminated a couple of these expenses, and then once we were done with those, car payments, mortgage, once we're done with those, now we take that surplus invest it. we're going to eventually get to the point, which we're at now, where we don't have to work. And then what's that going to do with our time? You know, if, if a parent gets sick and we want to go out there for three weeks and take care of them or help out, we're going to be in a position where you don't have to ask anybody can I go do that? Hey, can I take my kid camping this weekend or on a random Tuesday? So anyway, our perspectives changed as, as we kind of went along. Um, but yeah, so paid off that first house and then we decided, you know, Hey, we're happy with the amount that we're spending. We're going to continue, you know, snowballing the surplus. Uh, and then that led us further down the road to where, um, uh, I'm investing the money on my own enjoying the process and, about, what is it, three, four years ago now, uh, moved into the house we're in now. And with that one, we actually had the liquid assets to where we could just buy it for cash. Um, and again, that to a lot of people, these decisions seem uh, maybe financially irrational. Because if you just draw out a chart of, am I better off putting my money in, say, the S&P 500 index or paying off a mortgage, under certain financial conditions, you could make a case that putting your money in that index is the better decision ultimately. Ultimately, what you'd earn, um, but by just eliminating expenses, you're creating this huge surplus in your life, um, and this optionality to switch jobs, not do a job, not work, uh, that we saw a lot of benefit in. Anyway, snowballed up that extra cash, and then bought the second house cash, and even within that, there were several advantages to it that you know, a couple of years back I wouldn't have even thought of. Um, The house that we ended up buying was from a friend and, uh, the friend we were overseas. we were going to move back for about six months. I saw his house pop up on Zillow, you know, emailed him, said, Hey, I'm interested in your place. It'd be cool to move into it. He had, uh, kind of flipped the house and was looking to move into something else, but he also had a family. And so he didn't have a place immediately to go to. So by structuring, uh, the sale with cash, it was a huge advantage for both of us. So I just paid him one payment, which was under his asking price because what I, I didn't have to come in with a realtor. I didn't have to do the uh, inspections and all the other things that we would normally have to do in order to secure a mortgage. So I came in under asking, but netted more to him. And then since I was overseas for a few more months, I said, Hey, while you're figuring your life out, just live in the place. Don't bother paying rent or anything. And when we get there, we'll move in. And so you kind of end up with these win-win situations that you wouldn't have even known about, you know, had you not gone down this sort of unusual journey.
1: Really cool. So let's that really kind of hits deep, too, on, like, the initial mindset and why, the why behind it, which I think is really important that people find their why. So when you know what you want and you've defined your why behind it, like, really the next thing to do is is to do a plan and the plan is going to be consisting of techniques and tactics you're going to execute through the whole plan. Yes. But that, that, that like is where people blow it. Cause they think I'll just throw a bunch of techniques and tactics on the wall. There has to be an overriding strategy. Yes. Right? And yes. then strategies are made up of techniques and tactics. So what was kind of your
2: strategy that you applied to this journey? Yes. Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I had mentioned, some of the authors that influenced me quite a bit back around 2010-11 when I was laying there with my broken leg, um, one of them was Nassim Taleb. A lot of people know his work. He's written Black Swan, Anti-Fragile, Fooled by Randomness. Um, and in the book, uh, The Black Swan, which was out at the time, he talks quite a bit about this concept of you have fragile things and you have anti-fragile things. But in our culture, we don't really think about the word anti-fragile. So if you ask somebody, hey, what's the opposite of fragile, as Taleb would say, they would say something like sturdy or robust or strong. But that's not really the opposite. It's more the midpoint. So something that's, let's think financially, it'll it'll clarify it. And this is how I understood it uh, in my own situation. So I thought, okay, fragility is paycheck to paycheck and a lot of debt. If anything goes wrong in that situation, I'm like a guy on a treadmill running a six-minute mile, and if I just slip, trip, or cough, boom, I get shelled right off the back of the thing. So that's fragile. So anti-fragile would be a person who's not only financially independent, but has a lot of assets, maybe non-correlated assets, um, so that when there are changes in the market, like in the last two years since COVID, there have been a lot of changes, right? A lot of people made a lot of money. You know, an Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos, those people made a lot of money. That's anti-fragile. Sure. Volatility comes, they make money. So then I started to think, well, what's robust? That's something in the middle. Okay, so to me, as I understood it, and as I came to think, robust was I don't have the debt, I don't have the car payment, I don't have the mortgage, I'm not paycheck to paycheck. So maybe I'm not rich, however you would define that but at least I'm in a position of sturdiness. I can kind of resist the storms of life. So this is what we decided to do. And this was the tactical plan, you know, getting back to your question, you can try to go from fragile on paycheck to paycheck. And I got a lot of debt and think, well, I'm going to get rich. And maybe you go invest in Dogecoin or something like that, because you want to go to zero to hero in one step. Um, but what we did instead was, Hey, let's go to this midpoint. Let's go from a fragile situation to a robust, to, not paycheck to paycheck, good savings, no debt, no mortgage. And that's going to give us room to breathe. And then from there, that solid base. Okay. Now let's go to anti fragile. Let's build wealth. Let's build assets. Let's do the rest. And the other side benefit to doing it that way was that I had already put some money into IRAs, just kind of as a normie over 10 years. And so I spent the next 10 years as we were going, you know, to the no mortgage point, the no paycheck to paycheck point, I spent that time, taking that money, that little bit of capital and investing it myself. And what it did is it allowed me to make all these mistakes um, and successes with a small pool of capital. So that by the time I get to where you've got, you know, seven figure plus net worth, you know how to handle it. You know, you hear about these lottery winners where they get a bunch of money, they blow it and it's gone. Well, they don't know how to handle it. They haven't been trained. It's like a kid where you give them some kind of, you know, high end motorcycle or something. They're going to kill themselves. So I think going tactically from fragile to robust to then the anti-fragile, it allows you to learn along the way so that you get to a point one day where you can handle it and know what you're doing.
1: Very, very true. That makes a lot of sense. Now, when we when we look at building financial independence, there's really two things that we can do. There's two sides of the the cash flow that we can address. We can address the income and we can address the outflow. Because earlier when you were talking about how much money you were going to make over your career in the military, the axiom that you came to really is it is not how much you earn is how much you keep. Yeah, 100%. So so most people, at least starting out, have very little control on how much money they can earn. Like one of the great things about being an entrepreneur is if I want to make more money this month, I can just work harder and I can literally make more money. Yep. But if I have a job, which most people do, that's that's where they get their income from is from a job, then short term, the way they can increase their income is beg for some overtime and watch half of it go away in taxes. So the place that makes the most sense, just like when people say, I want to put solar on my house, it's like, yeah. well, first do your insulation, make sure you have right, uh, right. you know, the right appliances, the right windows, like efficiency will do more than $10,000 worth of solar panels, so that's the bleed. That's the entropy of the energy. So, the entropy yeah. of the income is where to go next. So, what do you think are ways to address that sh- side of the balance sheet? What are the best ways yeah. to save more money, even right. if the income itself doesn't go up dramatically?
2: Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Um, so, you know, one of the ways I, I, I talked about before your big costs for most people are food, transportation, housing. Um, and like you said, most people have a fixed income and to some extent being military, I also was in that situation. You can't do a whole lot to get a raise. I mean, you get a promotion, but it's a fairly fixed schedule. So yeah, I had to address the expenses first. Um, one of the ones that, that gets most Americans is transportation. Um, so if you look at like uh, a a puts out statistics on this from time to time, like what's the cost of the average car per year. And so they factor in the oil changes and the tires and, you know, all the different things that go into a car and they're they're assuming a 10 year old car that's you know beat up or whatever. Um, and it's about seven thousand dollars a year. At least last time I looked, this is years ago. So that doesn't seem like a lot of money. Um, but when you're compounding money over, say, a decade, you know, seven thousand dollars, just over 10 years, you're up to seventy thousand dollars. If there's any kind of compounding, you're quickly getting in hundreds of thousands of dollars. So most Americans will have two cars, maybe three cars. So that was the first area that we addressed was let's just do one car, even though we're a family, you know, we have kids and we have things going on and I'm going to ride the bike. So I'm going to ride the bike to work. Um, so what does that do for you? Well, almost like permaculture, at least as I understand it, cause I'm, I'm new to that. Certain things can, uh, self reinforce and, and work together in a mutually beneficial way. So that's something that for me, the biking was, and I know not everybody can do this, but it's still a good example. So by biking, I'm, I'm saving the 7,000 a year right off the top. What's the other thing? I'm training for me. I was training for triathlons and different races. Well, now, you know, I'm getting an hour in on the bike, hour and a half in on the bike in some cases a day in the time that I would have been commuting. So now my health is improving, you know, at the same time. Um, the other benefit of it is I'm on these bike trails because I'm trying to avoid cars now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm on a bike trail, and so now I can put in the headphones and I can listen to a podcast, right? I can listen to the survival podcast, and so I'm learning at the same time. Another benefit that I've seen and that other guys who've kind of followed my example have, have also said is work can be frustrating, and it creates like a barrier between you and work. So if I get in the car and I get into traffic and the traffic frustrates me, by the time I get home, I'm angry from work, I'm angry from getting cut off, and now I bring all that home. It's like dumping the garbage in the front yard. Whereas when I was on the bike, you know, you're releasing all those natural endorphins. You're doing the fitness thing. There's this buffer of space. And so by the time I get home, you know, the work problem is gone for the most part. It's behind me. Um, I've saved the money. I've got the health benefit. And I'm ready to go into phase two of the day, which is being with the family or whatever else there is. So you see things like that with the biking um, that can really help. Uh, So... And there's, there's other examples of that. I mean, another one, and this is a more simple one, but you know, for me, my thing is espresso. I love really good coffee. Uh, I could go to Starbucks twice a day and get a medium, you know, priced drink. And that's going to cost me maybe five bucks a drink. That's 10 bucks between, you know, the two for me. If my wife does the same thing, we're up to 20 bucks. Well, a really good espresso machine that you can make coffee with at home. You know, we paid 220 for our last one. And so you know, you pretty quickly see that in 10, 11, 12, less than two weeks, um, you can just buy a machine and make the coffee at home. And what are the yeah. benefits of that? Again, I'm not driving. I'm not spending the gas. Um, I'm spending the time at home. Maybe I'm reading a good book. I'm out watering the flowers. I'm hanging out in the garden. So a lot of these things, you know, it might seem like a sacrifice is my point to say, oh, I'm going to save money. But depending on how you tactically look at it, you can find there's actually things that save money and they provide like these spinoff benefits um, that are really fantastic. So that's one of the tactical things is looking at those big costs, you know, food, transportation, and shelter. And then is there some way I can adjust it? You know, not everybody's going to to ride their bike to work for a bunch of different reasons, but can I live closer to my job? Um, can I just downsize into a smaller house? I mean, that's another I- example. The house that we're in now, fantastic house. It works well for us. Uh, but it's modest compared to some of my peers. So that might seem like a sacrifice, um, but at the same time, I now have the option to do whatever I want with my life, take my kids on a multi-week surf trip, um, and enjoy myself, whereas somebody else is still on the treadmill trying to pay off the McMansion. So I hope that answers your question.
1: No, it does. It's an excellent answer, and I I like uh, K Bonks. always got great stuff to say. Tactical financial operation. I love this breakdown. <laughs> given given you have sort of a, a business uh, theme than this, that might actually be some good marketing. I find the best marketing always comes from your audience, even when you don't agree. Back in the 70s, everybody made Volvo's marketing safety, and they fought it tooth and nail, and it was the dumbest decision that a car company ever made. So, like We yeah. want to be cool. It's like, well, you're square. You're literally yep. a square car. You're not cool, but you are safe. <laughs> Right, yeah. and that's so. If somebody gives you something, maybe embrace it. Uh, what What is your framework, and what framework do you recommend people use when evaluating investments? Um, I think there always has to be a balance. I, I am a big fa- fan of the, the the philosophy that is dictated in uh, *Richest Man in Babylon*, and it basically says not to invest in things that you don't understand and seek the counsel of the wise before you do. But yeah. there's also a point of you you will never fully understand, like. Most investments, like if you even if you go to like conventional securities, like stocks or ETFs, they'll send you a freaking prospectus that's just wasting your money, right? Right. It's like the, the size of like a small town's phone book back when they had them. No one reads that stuff. No one fully understands it. How do you find that balance when it comes to understanding the why and what of your investment and like planning things? Like I need to make sure that. I have an out plan. I think like that's one of the biggest holes I see is people have an exit plan with investments. It's just buy, 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 buy. Right. And I think there's some things maybe you can do that with. Right. But like if you're buying things like Exxon there, there's probably good exit strategies at certain points in time.
2: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So that's a really good question. Um, so first of all, I, I know we speak to a broad audience here, so you might self identify as someone who never wants to learn about investments. And you still want to go on a journey toward more independence financially. In that case, I think controlling your expenses and just putting your money into an index fund, for example, is better than the alternative of not saving anything paycheck to paycheck. So there's sort of the generic plan. Um, if you do want to become more savvy with picking your own investments, uh, Warren Buffett has a, a saying or a statement that he said a lot of times, I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman. And I'm a better businessman because I'm an investor. And so those things are complementary. And one way that uh, I saw that play out in my own journey was just the very simple example of the house. So once I started renting my house, you start to understand accounting in like a visceral way. You get in touch with your investments. You might say before, well, what is free cash flow? Well, as soon as you have the house and you have the rental income, you start to understand, okay, I understand what free cash flow is. I've got this depreciation schedule on the home. It's a non-cash expense. So every year, they're going to give me, say, $7,000, $8,000 of depreciation on the home. And that's going to go right to my bottom line as far as money that I get out of the house. Eventually, I've got to pay that you know, expense of depreciation somehow, but I don't have to do it today. I get to keep that money, and that goes into my free cash flow. That's just one example. But by running a business, whether that's a side hustle or renting a home, uh, you start to understand viscerally because you're doing it. Um, things like an income statement, a balance sheet, a cash flow statement, because you're doing it and it matters. I'm sure it's the same way for you, you know, running your own business, running a podcast, right? Yeah. It's one thing to get an accounting degree. It's another thing to go, hey, I have to meet these expenses this month. Oh, what is that? That's cash flow. Yeah. You know, I have to build up my asset so that if something happens to me, you know, my wife is taken care of when I can't maybe do the podcast anymore. Okay. That's a balance sheet. So I think a lot of the education is best done just by the practitioner the do it um, is something I would recommend if you're interested in that path if not hey put it in an index fund and, and save money and and you can do it that way
1: you know I I think that you hit on something there that people really need to start looking at in their lives and I really never thought about how you have to look at this in your personal life the way I do a business I just do it naturally because I run a business so right right you mentioned my cash flow in a business so I have an outflow of expenses and I have different types of expenses, really three different types of expenses, the most macro category I can make. Guaranteed, 100%, going to happen, known cost. And maybe that right. cost goes up or down annually. Yeah, you cost. Right, but it's a, like my server is going to cost me about $780 a month. It, every month. And it might go up next year, and then it might piss me off, and I might drive it down by going to a new host or something. If, if I can go through that hell, it's it's worse than a proctology exam to move a server with as much as we have on it. Um, but that's a fixed, known, constant, it-will-never-go-away expense. Then we have expenses that are variable but by choice. Right. So that would be an example of I just discovered Fountain for podcasts, and I love it. And I've thrown like 100 bucks in it so far to promote clips and parts of the show to get more exposure. So that's a variable, but it's discretionary. Yes. And then we yep. have non-discretionary variable. And you need a war chest that accounts for all three of those in your life. Yes. And your invest investment should be geared toward, in my opinion, now talking to you and listening to this really astute way you've put this, your investment should be geared toward the income yield off those investments should help build that year uh, that war chest yes. with those three macros in mind. Constant, yeah. ongoing, you're going to have that expense. Even when you pay your house off, you're going to have property taxes, Yep. Right. And you know what they're going to be, and yep. that's going to happen. But if we can take, like, I know you own more than one property. If you take a second property, and you're you have a tenant you've put in it, yeah. And they exceed the taxes, that that expense becomes a phantom expense that is used in your, you know, you take that plus your depreciation, you throw that in your income tax return.
2: Yep. Right. So there's ways to be strategic yep. with basically moving an expenses category. Yeah. And I think that's something I learned along the way, and it ties into another point, which is. I think it's helpful to look at, say, financial independence on a sliding scale. I think you talk about percentages of either self-sufficiency or self-reliance, one of them you measure in a percentage and And so I think it's very similar, as I've come to understand for finances. So you know somebody might say, to be financially independent, you need to know what you're going to spend in a year. Okay, I'm going to spend fifty thousand dollars, all right? And so you know, I'm going to do the four percent safe withdrawal rule from an index fund. So I'm going to take fifty thousand a year. I'm going to multiply it by twenty five, you know, twenty five times. Come up with uh, whatever that is, one point five. No, yeah, one point five million or so. And then I'm going to get my passive income. But it's not really a fixed amount like that. So by going back on my journey, and I kind of came on it by accident, by taking care of what we were talking about before, those fixed costs, the mortgage, the car payment, and reducing the fixed costs down, you have already financial dependence to some degree. So if you lose your job, you can just say, you know what, I'm obviously not going to go out and buy the brand new mountain bike this week and take my wife to a $200 dinner. I'm not going to do that. And, and so now whatever cash flow I have coming in is going to cover me because my fixed costs have dropped down. So I think it's important to see it on a sliding scale, um, one, because it's a good perspective, and two, it's more encouraging for people. So you could say, hey, let me take care of these big costs in my life so that i have a degree of independence maybe that doesn't mm-hmm. mean i'm going to stop working and live off $250,000 like a king but that journey to go from you know zero to 250,000 a year in passive income is a pretty long journey and could get discouraging along the way where how much better is it to have kind of benchmarks along the way where you say hey to a percentage to a degree i'm independent and if the world changes i don't like where i live i don't like the job or whatever i can switch and it's not a disaster
1: Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I like what you're saying there. And I've taught self-reliance as a percentage and self-sufficient or self-reliance as a term, and self-sufficiency as a percentage for a long time. And that's an interesting thing to apply to financial model where if I have savings, your your basic ninety-day emergency fund. Yeah, I've got ninety days of self-reliance. Yeah. I have basically 0% self-sufficiency with that. There's no yeah. income out of that 90 day. That's just a slush fund. That's shit hit the fan. I have a variable non-discretionary expense that I have no choice in that I have to pay. The 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 kid got in a in an accident in school and I have a great big deductible on my insurance plan and I got to come up with 3 grand, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, if I have money in an income producing asset, Yep. Then if that asset is even producing, let's say 10% of my ongoing expenses, I have 10% legitimate self sufficiency yep. from that income producing asset. That's an, yeah. Yeah. This, this, uh, this tactical, yeah, tactical, tactical financial operations is,
2: is yeah. pretty, yeah. And like I said, cool. one of the cool things is as you do it, a lot of things you just learn better by practicing. I mean, you can do do so much academic study, but then you go out and practice it. So taxes, for example, is one of those things. I didn't take accounting classes in taxes, but as you know from running a business, once you start going down that road, you learn about taxes, right? (laughs) So with with a house, for example, if I have a mortgage and it's $2,000 a month and I'm going to use earned income to pay my mortgage, well, I don't earn $2,000, right? If I'm in, say, a 20% tax bracket, I have to earn two thousand, you know, four hundred dollars. Because that four hundred I have to earn to pay the tax on the money I earned. Whereas once I eliminate the mortgage, the savings to me is more than just the two thousand a month mortgage payment. It's that mortgage payment plus the taxes I would have paid. And so you know that's another thing that i've that I've learned as you go through this process is again, it's kind of visceral, and you're experiencing it, you're doing it, and you're going, "Oh, I see why this matters now. I see why investment income is better than earned income, yeah, it becomes very apparent, but you learn by doing, yeah, yeah, absolutely, man, um
1: so we're kind of getting to a place where we take something like survival that I teach the classic survivalism that I teach, like storing food and water yeah. and having energy backups and everything, and taking financial independence and seeing their overlaps. What else yeah. do you see kind of Venn diagrams
2: into that model? Um, I mean, I think there's a ton of things that kind of Venn overlap diagram into the model. Um, this is, uh, well, there's another concept from, from Nassim Taleb that, again, that I picked up and thought was really great. And he talks about quite a bit, via negativa, so Italian for the negative way. And what he was getting at was that a lot of times in your life, the more powerful tool is to eliminate rather than to add. So let's take health. Um, if I want to improve my health, the normal thing would be somebody wants to add, I want to add a protein shake. I want to add a gym membership. I want to add this. But if you look kind of via negativa, what what's the most robust way to go about it? Maybe it's to eliminate. So what in my diet is, is doing the most damage? And I eliminate that thing. Um, and I think, kind of tying it back to the finance part. Again, if you're you're looking at what can I eliminate in my life without causing you know undue suffering or whatever, sometimes you get a better result. So if I eliminate the car commute to work, um, it seems like maybe a negative on the face of it, but you're actually gaining more than if you'd added something. So instead of getting a better car to make my commute to work more comfortable via negative, let me take something away in life and see what happens. Well, I eliminate that commute. And now by being on the bike, by getting the health benefits, you know, things improve. Uh, so that's one way. I, honestly, I feel like on that one question, you could just go on and on and on uh, because there's so much overlap. Um, you know, I was just out, you know, in the backyard before we were talking, tending to kind of the garden, the grass and these kind of things and thinking about how it applied to finances as well. Because you see that, um, like, for example, if you get a big dead spot in your grass, then that thing is just going to, the sun's going to beat it down. It's going to evaporate more it's going to get drier. It's going to get harder for the life to form. But when you have a lush environment and things are already healthy and already growing, that compounds and you get that compounding effect where things get even better. Um, and again, the same thing in finance, where if you have multiple streams of passive income coming in, you'd have a healthy amount of debt. If you're going to use debt at all, it becomes this kind of little biome that's, uh, feeding off of itself and making other parts of your life, um, you know, more robust and better. um, but yeah, I think it's kind of it's a bit of a a side note. But there's an interesting essay that Keynes wrote, um, the economist John Maynard Keynes in 1930. Um, and this is probably the only time anyone's going to quote Keynes on the Survival Podcast. So if you want, <laughs> no,
1: you know, there's reasons.
2: On, Go ahead. Later on, I could talk about Hayek or you know, you yeah. know or whoever you want. But for now, so it's 1930. The stock market crash had already happened, and the mood was pessimistic. And Keynes wrote this essay, which is only seven pages long, it's worth a read, called The Economic Possibilities of Our Grandchildren. And he was doing this multi-generational thinking, which I've heard you talk about before. Yeah. And he said, hey, if you just look at human progress through technology, humans have become more efficient at at making things. If you go back 100 years, 90% of men were involved somehow in farm work. And now it's a fraction of a percent. That's something Warren Buffett talks about quite a bit. So Keynes is talking about that theme. He says, if you look at this compounding curve out 100 years, 1930 to 2030, it would be possible that society would be so efficient that all the needs of humanity could be met. And he said, you know, it could be possible that in 100 years, our grandkids will only work a three hour work day and maybe a 15 hour work week. And so it's interesting because he's caught a whole lot of flack for writing that essay. People say, well, where is it? We're still working 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week. Keynes was wrong. But he goes on in that essay and he talks about something else. And he talks about two different types of human needs. And he says in in humanity, you have uh, fixed needs, which is like I was talking about before, food, shelter, transportation, security, those type of things. And then you have variable needs. And variable needs, he listed as things where you're comparing yourself to somebody else. A modern economist would call this, uh, the hedonic treadmill is a term they use. So basically, I always need the new thing. I always need the new gizmo because Joe has it, right? So yeah. I've heard the statement. It's not, uh, it's not greed that drives the world, which people say a lot. It's envy. Hmm. It's the fact that I want what they have. So in the absence of the comparison, I wouldn't really need it. I just want to make sure I'm better off than Joe. So anyway. Keynes's point was we could be efficient enough in a hundred years by 2030 to work part-time, everybody, but humanity is one so ingrained in the normal work habits that they may just stick to age old habits and two, the human desire to stay on that hedonic treadmill. It's so strong that perhaps we will just continually try to one up each other into sort of wage slavery. And so anyway, it's an interesting essay because if you think about today in a lot of ways. So if you go back to when he wrote that essay in 1930, the average house was a thousand some square feet. The average, you know, couple maybe had a car. They didn't have a TV. They had, you know, a small kitchen. So basically they were living very modestly. And if you fast forward that today, if someone chose to live that way today, you might almost be able to pull it off with a decent income on near part-time work. So in a sense, what Keynes talked about of staying on that hedonic treadmill has kind of happened where we're so, you know, short-sighted and in competition with everybody else that we are keeping ourselves in sort of a wage slavery that we could be free from. And he wraps up the essay in a really neat way. He basically says, at what point, you know, will humanity embrace the actual art of living versus, you know, or the actual art of living that compounding and technology have won him.
1: Yeah. I think there's a lot there. First, let's defend bringing up Keynes because people rightfully crap on the guy in ways. Right, right. Right. I do too. But the entire economic system is being run effectively by the great grandchildren of Keynes. Right. So like they went like, it's, it's the professor that was the, the student of Keynes that was the professor of the next professor. So like you need to understand Keynesian economics because you're living in it. Oh, what's yeah. The from, right. what, what's the thing from what was the thing from um uh, Pirates of the Caribbean? You best believe in ghost stories. You're living in one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In <laughs> I don't believe in Keynesian economics. Well you're living in it. I, it right. doesn't mean it's the right thing. The yeah. other side of this though, you're hitting something really astute, and that is even as messed up as our economy is with a guaranteed devaluation of the, the money itself over time. The way our society works is, and you use the word, I was waiting for it, it came in there, technology. Technology is inherently deflationary. Yes. So technology costs less. I have a TV set in my living room that 10 years ago was probably $10,000. If it was I even available. I not buy it when it was $10,000. Jack's yes. are going to spend no 10 grand on a TV set, right? So yeah. I waited until I could get that TV for about $850. And I thought, you know what, I've, I've got plenty of money. It's not going to hurt me. I'll go ahead and buy that deflationary technology now. Yes. If we trained our young people, especially if we gotta still think of the time of Keynes, what did what did young people do? They found a mate, they got married, and they built a nuclear family. That was ninety percent of people and the ten percent that didn't, most of them it was still their goal. They just didn't pull it off for whatever reason, right? Yeah. So if you had that model, even with this screwed up economic system we have, yes, and young people were taught because you watch these young people and you know middle income, blue collar, upper, you know, like middle white collar people spend 20, dollars 40,000 on a freaking wedding for a half day party. Oh yeah. Right? right? Like you so their do kingdoms. That. That's a <laughs> don't do that. It's a terrible idea. Yeah. And make your goals in your marriage to acquire the long term income holding assets in your life, your house, your cars, That stuff first. Screw technology. Screw gizmos. Screw gadgets. Get everything paid off as quick as you can. I think that it's. I don't think you could get to three hours a day. Yeah. Under our system and and be really sustainable because we have this devaluation of money going on. Right. But there's no reason you couldn't get to maybe 30 hours a week. Yeah. And remember, this was a this was a one income per family time. I know you did everything you did on one income, which we'll get to in a minute, but today you have two incomes. So effectively today, if you have two parents, each working 20 hours a week, you have a single 40 hour week. I think this can be done today. And then you're close, right? You're four hours a day instead of three. That's, that's not bad over a hundred years with a completely screwed up form of money. And the other side, you got to give, you got to give Keen some credit, even though he has a dick. Right. Because it's basically a, a soft form of communism is is, is how you're selling the idea. Yeah. Um But the money was still based on gold. Right. 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 The money was based on gold. So you almost can't evaluate Keynesian economics in a fractional reserve, non-gold peg dollar system and be yeah. in any way fair. Even if you yeah. don't want to be fair, you still right. kind of sort of got to give the guy a shake.
2: Right. And, and to be fair, we do that all the time. I can't remember the term for it. Um There's a Latin term for it. but Well, I know. When, when, ju- when, you, when you judge somebody from the past based on today. Today's reality. We, we do it all the time. And, and so, yeah, you're right. Keynes didn't exist in the system we have now. But I, I think broader, what I was trying to get, it, it's an interesting essay in that what he was doing is really reflecting on, one, deflationary nature of technology like you hit on. And, two, he talks about the art of living. What is living about? What is living for? Um, and so if nothing else, it should make you pause and think, where am I going? And that's what really gets me. I, I look at a lot of my peers who, who could have done the same thing that I did because I'm a very average guy who took an average path and did normal stuff. I didn't go to great extremes. Um, but because they never paused, because they never broke their leg and laid, laid there and thought about it for a couple of months in a hospital, you get years, decades down the road. And you've made no progress. You're still pushing that rock up a hill like Sisyphus, and you haven't gotten anywhere. And so what Keynes was doing in that pessimistic time was saying, hey, take a pause here. What is the art of, what is living all about? And and what if we just met the basic needs or whatever you know level you wanted to get to? And then from that point you said, All right, task complete. Now I'm gonna get on to living. And what does that mean for my relationship with others, for my relationship with my family? Um, And for my own goals and dreams, you know, you only get to live once. What are you going to pursue? Um, And I think that, again, that's something that I feel is kind of tragic when I look around me and I see so many people with so much opportunity that are essentially paycheck to paycheck kind of wage slaves because they never paused and they never thought, you know, what is the difference between my fixed and variable needs? So a bit of a tangent, but I think it's relevant. No, I I think think
1: that's absolutely the case. Have you seen... These ideas are 20 years ago, I'd say, maybe 30 years ago, especially like the 80s or the decade of decadence, right? Like everybody's yeah. YOLO for everything and whatever. 90s were pretty heavy on it, too. And then the 2000s continued it later. You know, later into like the 20 teens and all, I think it was more like scarcity mindset, but nobody really adapted. Are you starting to see more evidence that the kind of things we're talking about today are actually starting to take root in people's minds and in their actions?
2: I don't know. I I know that there are some really popular, you know, Mr. Money Mustache, for example, he's a very popular blogger, talks about financial independence. Uh, you interviewed at one point Jacob Lund Fisker. His book, Early Retirement Extreme is excellent. Um, and so I do see a group of people, you know, interested in it, but it's just too, it's, it's way too small. And and the point I'll get at here to, to move us a little bit further forward, but you look at a time like now where society is moving to be more and more and more coercive. And I'm not going to get specific about some of these issues, but for example, certain employers are asking of their employees to either do certain things medically or to take actions or to endorse things that the person doesn't agree with. And I've dealt with this myself. So, um, you know, with, with my own job, I had to look at my wife and say, am I going to follow what I believe? And what I think is right, or am I going to do what this person says so that I keep a paycheck? And by happenstance or whatever, for 10 years we've been putting ourselves in a financially independent decision. And we said to us as a couple, it's more important that we show our children and that hopefully they show their children that you have to live by your own ethics and compass, and that that's more important than a paycheck. We're not slaves, we're going to do what we believe to be right. And so You know, go back to that issue again, try not to get too detailed in it, but I got a text just this morning from a friend who said, Hey, kinda I fought the good fight on this particular issue. Um, I went the course, but in the end, I'm being told it's my job or I do this thing I I ethically and morally don't agree with. And so I went ahead and did it. But I feel he says, I feel a great peace about it. I think I made the right decision, I made my point. And I wanted to say you didn't make your point. (laughs) The point you made was that your ethics are relative, you know. And, and I'm sounding a little critical here, so I, I hope not to offend anybody. But the thought that that we would trade what we hold most dear for a paycheck is indicative of a problem. And and some people they can't get there. I get that. You know, if you're a single mom and you know you have a limited income or something, not everybody can do it. So I'm sensitive to that. But a lot of my peers absolutely can do that, and basically for the fact that they've stockpiled trinkets for years on end, they now have no independence. So when it comes to their most dearly held principles in that check, they choose the check. And uh, so I think, you know, yes, there's a movement of people getting interested in it, but what would a society look like, Jack, if if even 30% of us were financially independent? That's and actually you look at some of the that things that... Look at the question I have for you right here. Oh, is it? I mean, look at the thing, like, look at COVID and what happened and how many people, again, I'm I'm trying to not touch on some hot button issues, but a lot of people did things they otherwise wouldn't for a paycheck. Yeah. And so what does society look like when, when those who would coerce come to a group of people and say, here's what you're going to do. And they say, well, good luck figuring out how to run the assembly line. Good luck figuring out how to run, you know, the next shift. Because I'm good, I got food and I got some Bitcoin and I yeah. got my shelter squared away and we're good. You know, yeah. I'm gonna go start up a side hustle. You know, selling, you know, I don't know those uh, those bears that people cut with a chainsaw or whatever they sell. Yeah, or whatever it is, yeah. so I'm gonna go do this random or, or, or thing or because I can
1: freeze dried Skittles or some shit because yeah. people are actually making a living freeze drying candy now or like right. at least making some money, right? Um, so Yeah, I think there, and I think some of that's already, there's like, because of so much automation, um, and so many people figuring out how to tailor their lives already in in the, not as many as we would like. That's part of the whole labor shortage thing, right? It's also created by forcing people into having injections they don't want to have who then will not take a job because I can't find one that pays me what I'm worth without it or they're taking some. Or they're they're doubling up or something and they're taking a less income job so they're they're kind of doing this but I think the the big issue that you kind of hit on as we were turning into this there's a lot of people interested in it but interested in doing are different you know and I don't want to pick on people but I see a lot of people on on YouTube now that are the keto chefs or whatever you know and you look at the guy and go really yeah
0: yeah are (laughs) you
1: are Are you this is totally keto and they've like thrown all this friggin' shit in it, and it's like, that looks like a cake, yeah. and so do you. So I don't necessarily <laughs> think you, you are actually doing what you say. Yeah. And I think when you look at people like, I think you said Mr. Money Mustache, not really familiar with, but probably has a big following. Yeah. If big. that following was all actually following the advice rather than following the content, sure. the, the situation would actually maybe for the people not doing it be worse right now, right? Because this doesn't affect me that much, right? Because yeah. I'm one of these – I'm a person like you. Like, all of this has had very little impact on me. I might cuss if the bill for the groceries is a little higher, but right. it doesn't really affect me. Yeah. But there's people being crushed by just gas and groceries right now. Right. And right. It, it feels very cyclical, like, unless we do this, it won't go away. Because there's a song um, – I played it on the air a couple of times. It's called Muhammad's Radio. It's from the 70s by Warren Zevon, And it, it, it's work hard all day and still can't pay the price of gasoline and meat. Right. And the, he kind of double entendres meat as meat the ends and also yeah. the food that you eat. Okay. So that okay. was 1974. Mm-hmm. And doesn't it feel like we're – in 2022, yeah. right back in that moment. And it's because we have not taught this to our children right. who are now us, right? Yes. When I, we're kids, we, you know, I, mean, I don't know if you were, I kind of had this drilled into me. Like yeah. my dad wasn't just good with money. He's freaking over the top miser. Yeah. Right. And But maybe you need a miser as a mentor to be frugal as an adult. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it helps. Hopefully then might be But my Most of the, the people beginning. around me, like you're right. They're interested, but they're not engaged.
2: Yeah, interested and committed. Yeah, very different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I was going to follow on to that and I lost my train of thought. Sorry. That's okay. But yeah, I, I do think a big thing with with it is the resistance to coercion. And then, like you said, you were talking about how many people are interested in this. And I said, hopefully more are, are coming along and, and interested in it. Hopefully that grows. But for now, my, the most common experience I have as I'm coming up on being done with the military, is you talk to a coworker or somebody, you know, an acquaintance, whatever. Uh, What are you going to do when you get out? Well, first thing, I'm going to go surfing with the kids. Okay, well, what about after that? Well, then I'm going to roam around the country and I'm going to figure out what the best spot is for us to live and thrive in. And then they say, well, are you going to get a job? Well, no, I don't really need a job. I I have the option to work later, but that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for these things first. And it's like a, a deer in the headlight type of thing. And then they'll follow on with, Oh okay well I can help you with your resume because there's some contract jobs that are really great and and you could fit right into them. They just move right on because there's not even a template. It's like it's like the file doesn't exist. You know, and even when you tell them, "Hey, I'm financially independent or something," it, they don't have a place to put it. So, unfortunate, but hopefully hopefully it's a growing thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's seeing other people do it and
1: realizing you could, too. One of the impacts of my life, I didn't end up following this guy's example because I wanted to get the hell out of Panama, but when I left Panama and left the military, there was a sergeant that I didn't work for him, but he was in my company. I kind of knew him onto the side, and uh, he was driving a really beautiful IROC Z Camaro. Mm. And I knew this guy wasn't the kind of guy that would live at the edge of his paycheck. So one day I'm like, dude, what's up? You're, you're a sergeant. And I think back then a sergeant made, like, 800 bucks a month. Yeah. It wasn't much money. And like, you know, he's probably got a $300 payment if he's got payments on the car. And he's like, yeah, I don't really care about my military income anymore. And I'm like, you don't, you don't What like, you, like, like, cause the idea that you would have a part-time job while you're in the military deployed to Panama, that's, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. And what would you make anyway when the the minimum wage was like 215 an hour down there or something. Right. Yeah. So, I think it was actually $1.75 was the minimum wage in Panama in the uh, early 90s. So anyway, he says, well, my brother's in the jewelry business. And so he, I, I've, I've worked with him and I've learned everything I need to know about evaluating jewelry and specifically uh, jewels, you know, like the yep. not set. the free, I don't remember what you call them, but the jewels that are not set. They're just cut mm-hmm. and they're ready to go to be put into to settings. And so he sends me every week a uh, list of what he's looking for as far as, as free stones, And I go over to the uh, free zone where they bring stuff in duty free and I buy the stuff because I've been trained to evaluate stuff and I know what to buy and I just mail it to him and it's all completely legal. That's how it works. And then he cuts me in. I profit for a percentage, uh, percentage of the profit. So like, I was like, well, wait a minute. So this guy does the literally has the same paycheck I do. Yeah. Right. He has the same, he has like, he has the same amount of time I have. Yeah. He probably had less with what his job was than, right. than, than I did. Like I was in a motor pole. Like, yeah. <laughs> and you, you, and once you get to a certain rank, you can make time for yourself, right? If you're in the motor pool. right? Unless yep. you're employed or something. So like, and he's driving around in this freaking and I wasn't one of those people like, oh, it must be nice. Cause that, that means yeah. you're going to be broke your whole life if you, exactly. Think that, right? That's poverty. But I was mentality. like in awe. I'm like, wait a minute. Like he just saw this and you could sit there and go, well, he has a brother. Yeah. But there's a whole, there's a million people like his brother. Right. There was an opportunity to go find a thing that was cheap shipping that could avoid that duty completely within the legal envelope and be a gopher for somebody. And I may have done something, but I was like, I was like
2: four weeks from from being discharged at that point. So it was like, I don't have time, but it was like that always stuck with me. Like, well, there's always something you can do. Absolutely. And again, going back to what I said previously, I, I would imagine that this guy you're talking about was able to better evaluate investments and opportunities later on because that skill set compounds. So when he looked at what does it cost me to get the stones and then what's the markup, what's the profit margin, uh, what's the risk I'm taking, all the stuff that he analyzed, that's how you analyze a company you're going to invest in their stock or a real estate deal or whatever the case is. And so those skills compound uh, as you go on and, and they're so helped by doing it. So um yeah, especially for folks like, you know, you and you are in the military or somebody like me who's got a fixed paycheck and a set amount of hours and that type of thing to work with. It really is great if either by you know, renting property or starting a side hustle or starting a business, you just get out there and do it um, so that you can start learning these skills. Um, it, it's just so much better than the academic knowledge of cracking a book open, you know, and reading Accounting 101 or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. So... Do you have any specific investment advice? Can we talk a little bit about, you know, evaluating investments from from a standpoint of the form, like stocks and bonds and things like that? Uh, individual investment into businesses, real estate. I think I know you have, like you said, two properties that are paid for. Yeah. Actually, before we go there, I wanna I wanna just to drive some things home with the audience here. Talk about okay. how many kids do you have? Okay. So and yeah, you're in the military, but you're also a single income family right and you guys
2: were able yeah. to do this on a single income yeah so my wife has never worked since we were in the military she worked first summer we were married in college at target briefly um but yeah hasn't worked since we were in the military and then four kids so uh yeah again I, i'm sensitive to there are people in situations where they can't do what we did and, and so I don't, I don't mean to upset anybody but also we're fairly normal um uh, and so I think that's a huge takeaway from all of this is that if you take the time to reflect, hopefully without breaking your leg, you may realize that there's a margin in your life where you can whittle some space out and do the same thing. Um And that it's just a matter of commitment. So it's not difficult, it's simple, but it requires the commitment and the follow through. Um So yeah, pretty, pretty normal family and, and just the one income and just kind of an uber commitment. I mean, there are times I'm goal driven, so I get a little fanatical. I remember my, I told my wife at one point, Hey, if it ever gets to be too much, you know, pursuing these goals as hardcore as we are, you just let me know and, and you know, we'll adjust or whatever. And <laughs> there was one point that was like eight years ago, she goes, I'm letting you know. <laughs> and I said, uh, noted. <laughs> we kind of kept pressing on, but, um, anyway, the point is it, it's a very, achievable thing to do. And, and I think that that's again, a useful takeaway. Cause I listen to other podcasts where they'll have uh you know, Seth Klarman or Howard Marks or some great investor come on and talk. And it almost feels like if you're a sports fan that you're watching, you know, Kobe Bryant or something like that, it, it's just, and, and just you want to play
1: basketball.
2: Like right, know, it's, it's right? unattainable. Yeah. Right? You're not going to be Warren Buffett. I'm not going to be Warren Buffett. No. So to have a dude like me, just average dude. And you're like, well, you made it work. I think that can be encouraging because people go, well, maybe I can find this space here and this margin over there and open up a gap here and I compound that over a couple of years. And just like this goofball, you know, I can be in a position to where um when it comes to where do I want to live, the first question is, where do I want to live? And not where's the job? Where can I
1: afford to live, right? Yeah,
2: and, and especially in this environment today, that's that's huge um as people are getting more mobile and moving all around the country to say you know, I, I don't have to worry about the job market. I can move to maybe a more rural area where there are jobs available, and maybe my money goes further um, because of the position that you put yourself in. Versus and you're also, but you're also
1: doing that because you want to, not because you have to. Because even though I don't get it, there are people that like living in, like, right in the heart of big urban centers. Right. Yeah, and absolutely. So, if you or I move out to an urban setting, it's because, one, we, we will make the financial case, but we're really what we're saying is, I don't want to be there. Right. right. But being able to make that decision by choice
2: rather than requirement, that is is where you get freedom, which is what we're talking about today, right? Yep. And and a lot of this comes down to really understanding what an option is as well. So an option is a financial contract. It's the right but not the obligation to do something. So if I buy an option on a stock, I have the right but not the obligation to purchase that stock, right, for a set price. So once you attain a certain margin of financial independence in your life, you have an option contract on all sorts of things. Um, do I have to not work anymore? No. I could go work for an airline you know, next year and earn a whole bunch of money because I choose to do it. So I'm not subjugating myself to a, a limitation. I have the right but not the obligation to go do that. Um, but I can also go do this other thing. Um, and I think that's key for people to understand, too, because I've, I've talked to some folks where they say, oh, I wouldn't want to do what you're doing. I'd be bored. Hmm. You know, I need a job to motivate me. I need a job to keep me, you know, whatever. And one, I, I have other disagreements with that on its face. But two, I, I say, you know, I have that option. I can go do yeah. that. Why not? Sure. I'll go apply. I could work. But I don't have to. But i don't um, have to, yeah. And then, like I said, the, the arbitrage opportunities that it opens up. Like, one, for example, um, we spent some time, lived in Hawaii. There's a couple different islands in Hawaii. On Oahu, the cost of living is... Much higher. You can just go look it up online. But, you know, for houses and stuff like that, you're going to pay 2x at least what you're going to pay on the Big Island. And why is that? Well, because on Oahu, that's where all the jobs are. So if you want to, if you want to live in Hawaii and work a job, you're double penalized because you got to go to Oahu where the job is. You got to pay out a whole lot more to live in a more expensive economy. But if you want to go to Hawaii because you like the climate and the waves, which I like, you go to the Big Island, there's no jobs there. But the cost of living is half of what it is. Otherwise. Half of what it
1: is, and since you have
2: the income, you don't care. Like, right. I always so, said like, optionality. If,
1: if you if you're good at virtual business, no matter what it is. I mean, podcasting is a great example because that's what I yep. do, so it's easy to lean on. But if you gave me a crater on the moon with a, with an internet connection,
2: South Pole of the moon.
1: Yeah, South Pole of the Moon. You listen to the show, you know <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, yeah. that's where the whole fight will be over the South Pole. And people, be like, it's, I'm telling you, like ten years from now, people are like, how the hell do you know? But it's true. Um, yeah. But you gave me a crater on the South Pole, and you gave me a you know a communication through NASA, and I could it, I wouldn't be able to do live interviews because I have a delay. But if I went back to my old model, where it's pretty much just me, I would be able to run my business and not have a dime less come in. Running my business on the moon. So if you can run your business on the moon, then you can run your your business business from Hawaii or, you know, I don't know, Sri Lanka or wherever, wherever you want to go. And if you have passive income, right? So maybe you're not really running, because you're more in a passive income realm from what I see right now anyway, right? right? Like then if you want to go to Hawaii, you can go to Hawaii. But also if you have passive income and you can set up your own lifestyle, and if you would like more money, then you can set up remote business, Right, and you, like you said, it's like purchasing an option. I may never exercise that option. Yeah, but I will. Okay. And this, I, I want to pick on this thing that you brought up about people saying like, "I need a job" or whatever. I think that's a lot like the person you say, like, "Look, um, you probably should have at least a little garden in your backyard." <laughs> yeah. And they come up with the whole shit where they're like, "But if there's the shit in the fan, then they'll come. St- everybody will come steal my food." Yeah. Okay, that's just just say you don't want a garden. Right. Don't make up. Don't pull some bullshit excuse out of your ass. And make up this BS excuse, like just say you don't want to do it. I think when people say that about a job, what they're really saying is, I don't think I can be successful with a business is what they're really saying, right? Yeah. And it makes me think of my wife when, when I first got this to the point where I'm like, you don't have to work anymore. And she quit and and then immediately she's like needed something to do. So I'm like, I put her to work in my business, but she probably, she probably works 10 hours a week, but to her, it probably feels like two. Yeah. 'Cause it's five minutes here and five minutes there and ten minutes here and it's whatever she fits it into the day, it doesn't matter because of the way yeah. we've done it. Yeah. And when we first moved back here from Arkansas, the place she quit when we went up there, they were like begging her to come back. They're like, We'll give you more money. And she's like, Well, I could go to work from three days a week. You know, it'd be nice to have the extra money. And I'm like, Okay, so then I'm gonna have to hire somebody to do what you do, and we're gonna have that cost. But yeah. well, let's put that aside. I want you I said I want you to sit down in your head. I want you to remember what it was like working that job. And I want you to go through your day when you show up in your head and walk in your mind through a a single day at work. And when you get to a point where you'd say on the first day, I'm going to quit, tell me. So you see her there, think. (laughs) And she's actually doing the mental exercise. She goes, yeah, it's not even lunch and I already quit because she knew she didn't have to be there. Right. And I think there's a lot of people that say they need a job or they, they need the structure of a job or whatever, but it's only because they don't have the that option you're talking about. Right, you have right. the option of not working. Because if you ask yep. that person, so what you're saying is if you won a lottery for $20 million, you keep your job. Yeah. Yep, and they're going to be like, oh no, well that's different.
2: Is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, another side benefit of all this stuff when you talk about financial independence, I think is, and you, I've heard you talk about this before, but it really encourages that intergenerational thinking. Yeah. Um, and I've seen that in my own life where, um, so I'm in government work. It's very common for someone to work a set time in the military, get a pension, and then they double dip as they call it. They go to another contracting job and they work another bunch of years till they're 65 or whatever. Uh, and they get that second pension. And they think that they've kind of won the lottery or whatever. And I'm not saying it's a bad deal, but oftentimes those pensions, they're tied to that individual. So if that individual, you know, dies, like we all will, it's gone. That doesn't get passed on to the family. And there's a big thing, especially in the States, and some of it is for good reasons. It's a pushback against intergenerational wealth. You know, even Buffett, who I really think is, Amazing. And I've learned a lot from him talks about, you know, we shouldn't be giving intergenerational wealth. We should heavily tax wealth. This, that, and the other. And I get what they're, I get what they're saying to an extent, but there is something to building something up and teaching your children about it and handing it off to them that connects you, um, to other generations, just connects humanity in a different way. And it makes for a society that values long lasting things. Um, and so, Before you go on, me, me just
1: say okay. all those rich people that say that, bluntly, screw them because okay. they all absolutely do it. They have different ways they do it. What they sure. mean is we want, we want your tax dollars through our money faucet, so we're going to say this completely ridiculous crap yeah. that we don't yeah. really mean because we use trusts. That's for us, and you peons can go screw, right? Yeah. But I do think there's something in what you just said that I if, if my son – is to take over my wealth. I don't ever see my son being a podcaster and taking over the TSP empire. Probably That probably dies with me, but the wealth store that it's created, it has to be phased in. As I get older, he has to start actually having access to some of it under my supervision so that I don't want to take a 16-year-old kid that just got his driver's license and hand him the keys to a Ferrari F40. No. That's a bad idea. So when you take somebody who hasn't experienced the management, the control and the power of wealth, and then you just kick off and they're like 52 years old and they're like a 52 year old teenager when it comes to wealth. Yeah. There will be nothing but destruction. And if you don't, yeah. it's not just training. Like when you start thinking multi-generational, you have to train them to train your
2: grandchildren.
1: Yeah. Yep. Because yes, it exactly. usually doesn't train the spender. trainer, which is
2: a military thing. Yeah, train yeah the you train. train
1: the trainer, right? The trainer trains the next trainer. And yep. it's usually not, Unless unless the parents die young. Again, a plane crash or you know, you know have a, a heart attack young or something. It's usually not the first generation that has the wealth handed off that it destroys. Right. It's the second or the third. So you have to right. create this cascade, it's like trophic cascade of wealth. Yeah. So that it goes down with some conditions. That's why I'm loving some of the smart contract stuff I'm seeing coming to Bitcoin. Yes. Very cool. Literally you could start creating if this then that. Yeah. So my third great grandchild that has some piece of the leftover speargo fortune, yeah. literally like has certain milestones in life they have to achieve and nobody can cheat it. It's yeah. just sitting there in a vault and yep. it, it stream sets, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like,
2: yeah. I, I love that idea. Yeah, and so again, just for me, I see people going down that path of like the multiple pensions, but then if you're the son of that guy and he dies at 70 and the, the pensions go away, it's kinda like, well, Dad shuffled papers in a cubicle and he checked Microsoft Outlook and it was neat and I appreciate it, whatever. Yeah. I'm trying to shift that and say, well, I'm going to build up these assets and teach my kids about them, how to manage them, how we got them. So they're they're rooted in it a little bit. And I don't know if I'll be successful, but at least it gets you thinking down that long term track. So, like, you know, you buy some Bitcoin. I sit down with just recently my son and showing him the mechanics of it and everything else and saying, hey, this is yours. You're going to have this one day, you know that's a whole different thing than I got some obscure pension from some, you know, you know, bureaucrat Inc. That's going to go away that he's not connected to. Right. Um, I saw this, this is a little bit separate from the financial piece, but this intergenerational thing I saw recently in my own life where, uh, my grandfather, amazing man, um, world war two vet, fought in both European and Pacific theater, um, recently died. This is just a couple of months ago. And I, uh, as a very efficient thinking type of person, I always kind of thought, well, cremation makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, there's only so much ground and we get rid of people and you're gone, whatever. So cremation made sense on an intellectual level. Well, we went out to this, uh, this, uh, cemetery plot to see him buried in North Carolina as it turned out. And I came up with a totally different feeling because uh, another family member and then another family member had been buried in that plot. I didn't even really know about it. So I started learning about the history and so-and-so came over as this first generation immigrant from uh, Europe. And this was their experience. And, you know, then this was my grandfather here. And then one day somebody else would, my point is it, it did that intergenerational thing again, where I thought, yeah. wow, I'm, I'm not just Josh in isolation. I'm the product of these people who did these things before. And the decisions I make now and the example I set echoes out, right? It's kind of that Roman thing of it. What you do in life echoes in eternity. And it's important to think that way.
1: Yeah. And have reverence for how you got what you have, even if it doesn't seem like that much. Yeah. Right? When I, Cause I, I, you know, I grew up a really poor kid that didn't know he was poor because my family knew how to live mm-hmm. and my father has plenty of wealth now, but he built it all. Like bare knuckles from the ground up. Guy started out as a bootleg coal miner. It's about as yeah. bottom of the barrel as it gets, right? Yeah. But when I look back to my great grandfather and my great grandmother on that side, and when they came to the US in, and landed in central Pennsylvania from Ukraine, um, and I look at what they had and I realized that my, my grandfather and my grandmother started with so much more, even though it looked like so little. Than their parents started with. Right. Like it was, it was, it was a momentous movement in like your starting block.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it started again as low as you, if you were a, a, a Slavic a Slavic inter- immigrant in the coal region of Pennsylvania mm-hmm. in the 1880s, the Irish were like, damn, it sucks to be you. I mean, it was <laughs> like, it was. Like, yeah, like we all got jobs in the coal mines, but you're the one that gets to die. I mean, it was, that's how it was. Yeah. And yeah. by the time my grandfather married my grandmother, my great-grandfather, who started that way, had bought a fairly sized piece of land. and He was running a bar uh, out of his house because you could do it back then. This is pre-prohibition, right? And he basically broke off a piece and my grandfather built the house. So he started out with a paid-for house. That they eventually took a mortgage on when he got drafted huh. into the war, but their mortgage was like twelve hundred bucks. Right, right. Right. <laughs> and that was like that was enough money that my grandmother was basically able to make it until he got back from his service in the Navy after being drafted. And yeah. like my my great grandfather would have started with zero. And yeah. so the fact that I was able to grow up in that house. Yeah. Was a gift from my great grandfather that I met one time in my life a few weeks before he died. And I was so young, I barely remember it. And like,
2: so need to be connected to that.
1: We all need to be connected to that so that we value what we have. Yeah. Like, I think that's a huge thing.
2: Yeah. And uh, it it just made me think of this when you talked about the $12,000 on the mortgage, but I read, I forget where it was, but they were basically talking about the price history, how boring does this sound, but the price history of things from like the founding of the country to now. And so what you see, very interesting, pre-1913, pre-Fed, when you more or less had a hard money standard, less a couple of inflationary like Civil War periods or whatever uh, with the greenback, what you saw was that through technology, through increased efficiency, prices were always going down. And so whereas I grew up and my grandparents would say, man when i was a kid you could get a uh, coca cola for a nickel you know and a candy for a penny and you're like wow that's yeah. crazy opposite that what those generations saw was that somebody said hey when i was a, a young person yeah. yeah 20 bucks you know would barely buy whatever it was but now for yeah. 20 bucks you can buy a good rifle um a meal and, you know, something else. And so yeah. they were seeing the opposite thing because they were on that hard money standard where prices were actually going down. And that was a little bit tangential, but it's fascinating how that filters into everybody's thinking. Um, even fast forwarding all the way up to now, I was talking to a guy in the office not long ago, and he was talking about how houses go up in value. And I said, well, they don't really go up in value. The, the nominal price is going up, but think about the asset itself, the house is depreciating. It's getting older. It's getting worn out. It needs things replaced. You know, it, you're just in an illusion of thinking it's going up in value. The nominal's going up. But anyway, it's just fascinating things studying price history and just realizing that the paradigm people lived in, you know, when you go back to I'm assuming when, when you're talking about with your relatives, it was a different model. Yeah. And a model yeah, that encouraged I mean, that is, savings.
1: Yeah, I mean I'm sure with all the stuff you've read, like you've read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? And right. Like there's a point in that book, and, and I always have to say it because if I don't, I'll get like 20 emails saying, "You know, it's not real. It's it's yeah. it's it's very, very, very loosely based on some form of a shadow, but it's basically bullshit, right?" Like, okay. but it's how you teach lessons in a storyline because it's much easier for people to learn. And there's a point in that book where he says to his rich dad, "But isn't it natural for prices to go up over time?" And Rich Dad says, no, in a well-ordered and run economy, prices should go down. Right. Yep. Right. So it actually should cost less over time. And if it, even if deflation was 2%. Yeah. Like the exact, the exact converse of, of, of planned inflation, which they'd never meet their target at 2%. It's always more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it changes the entire dynamic. Yeah. Yep. Right. I have to take less risk with my money. Yeah. And my salary actually becomes more powerful over time without a raise. Yep. You can and think about us, it like right yep. now, if you get a 3% annual raise, you're, you're falling behind. Right. You're, you're, but, but you're also like, that's kind of standard. Right. Right. That's kind of like, you did a good job, good boy. And you get, is, I'm, I'm not saying if you got promoted. I'm saying if you just get, you've, you've been in, been around another year, here's a 3% raise. You're falling behind. Uh, but that's, that's what you get. But imagine if you got a 2% raise per annum doing nothing but staying employed. Yeah. Right. The, the dynamics there, the math there it, it across
2: a lifetime. Yeah. Are huge. It, it is. And, and I find myself more and more having to do this mental inflation correction in my head because you can look at like, in my case, look at the price of the two houses or something and you go, Oh wow, I'm, I'm getting better off. Look at how these values are going up. But what really would be your net worth, for example, going up in hard money terms is you have another house. Like I go from two to three or three to four. So the actual asset base has increased. Um, but it's, it's easy to kind of get baked into a system where these nominal number go up things, um, fool you into thinking, you know, you're doing better all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, let's take a few.
1: Talking points, etc. From the audience here, and anybody else that has any, get them in all caps while we're here. I'm in a different screen, but I'll switch back over. Um, now, I said you had two properties. I didn't necessarily say you were a landlord. I think you're renting one of them. Yeah, you handle one of them
2: how do you handle that uh, tenants? We had a really good experience, particularly in the first several years, um, to where the you know the tenants lived there and it, it was fine. Um, I said earlier, you become a better businessman because you're an investor and a better investor because you're a businessman. Those are complementary, like Buffett said. I found that to be the case myself. So um, we had carpet in, in one of the houses, um, the one that we rent initially. And as we started more turnover on the tenants, you saw something like the carpet was having to get changed out frequently, and that's cutting into your income, your free cash flow. Um, and so it's pretty easy to put hardwood in. We had hardwood in half the house, um, and it's more durable. So that's an example of kind of, uh, a fix was we just took out all the carpet, we put in the hardwood and that stuff is easy to clean up and it lasts through multiple tenants. Um, and so again, you're kind of seeing the benefit of as you run a business, it starts to make sense real quick. What's, what's a loss, what's mm-hmm. a profitable decision. How do I put that into Excel and map out, you know, what's my return over time? You know, if if the carpet costs X and the hardwood costs two X, you know, how long does that have to last before I get a payoff? Um and I guess the point there too would be just to say it's easier to come up with mechanical fixes to solutions than than human ones. So kind of what I mean by that is like you, you might see a a sign on a door it says, Hey, please make sure you close the door behind you. Well that's okay. relying on human failure. That's just it's not going to work because eventually someone's just going to leave it open. What you need is a spring or something on the door that closes to close. the door. So you need a mechanical fix to a lot of problems, not an instruction manual trying to make a better human. And I so I think that's to, great. Yeah. So to some extent with the, the tenant turnover, I just know it, it's going to happen to some yeah. extent. You're going to have good, you're going to have bad that's life. So I got a little bit more buffer of cash so that I can always cover anything I need to on the house. Yeah, that's just a, a mechanical fix I put in place. And then, what things can I do to the house to, like I said, make it more durable, like the hardwood, or, um, or for example, like the HVAC system. I get that thing inspected every year. I don't have to do that, but I'm not going to rely on the goodwill of a renter to keep my HVAC system going. I'm yeah. going to take that on. Myself. Nor should you. Nor should yeah. you. So, um, I, I guess I would say that you got to say it's going to happen. Humans are humans, but are there some mechanical fixes I can put in place? that guardrail it. I mean, I can tell you a lot of, a lot
1: of the landlords around here, if they rent a house and it's, especially if it's an upper end house, they have professional landscapers take care of the landscaping Mm -hmm. and it just gets bolted into the price. That way you don't rely on your tenant for it. And when that tenant goes, it will have curb appeal. Right. right? Whether I want to exit and sell it at that point and harvest equity and do something else, or I want to re-rent it, I'm going to have that. Um, If it has a pool, It comes with a con, like, you, you're gonna have pool service in your rent. You're, you're, you're not gonna rely on that tenant to vacuum the pool or whatever. Like, that's, so that's one, one way of like out contracting some of the responsibilities, like you do with HVAC. The other thing is like a good friend of mine named Sean up in Arkansas, he was a construction, uh, uh, he ran a construction company and he was a builder. And so he did the dirt work and he did the actual home constructions with two separate companies. So what he would do, when he would do a development, he would build three houses and like his family would get pissed because they could afford way better. He'd build your standard kind of three yeah. twos, three of them right next to each other. Right. Yeah. And then he'd, he'd rent two of them out and they'd live in one until there was enough rental income to justify the next move. And then he would put a tenant in the third one and yep. then go do it again. Right. Yep. Like so that was his progression of doing that. And then over time, he started with selling them and roll them up into larger properties and things like that. And uh, he said that he built one set of houses with carpet in it. Never again. Yeah. Tile everywhere. Yep. Or hard. Tile everywhere, yeah. and he would put the same tile in all three houses.
2: Yep. She's and lay up a couple
1: three boxes of that pattern of tile, like he did the, the he like when the wood tile. It looks like wood, but it's actually tile first came out. Like all the living rooms and dining rooms were in wood, and then there's square tiles in the kitchen. Yep. And then he had some put away. So if a tenant dropped something or whatever, you just bash that tile out, drop another one in. Yeah. And it yep. became that, – that's a mechanical solution to a human problem, right? Like it just – I don't care. Yep. Tile you can clean. And, like, no white tile, no white grout. That was this right. other thing, right? Because <laughs> it's going to look bad after a couple of years.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, let's move on from there. Uh, this was a troll, I think. I eventually put this troll in timeout in case they weren't a troll and it never came back, so I'm pretty sure. But they were on and on with all the doom and gloom. But I just thought this was an interesting thing. You will own nothing and be happy. Um, I'm not on board with the World Economic Forum's concept of all own nothing and be happy, but I think there's also ways of understanding things. Like Most of the really rich people in the world own almost nothing on paper. Right. And yeah. I just that's think that, that. your financial – like when you're talking about multi-generational wealth planning. It's probably a good idea in some situations that a thing that you, you control, you don't own, mm-hmm. and your heirs won't own it. Yep. Uh, we could do things with, like, living trust and stuff like that. Where what, what happens is the, the control of the thing changes rather than ownership. Yep. And I think that a lot of kind of, like, the pride of ownership marketing has been used to bilk a lot of money out of the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, coming from my roots, this was something I had to struggle with. Like, if you would have asked me 15 years ago, will you ever lease a car? Yeah. I might have had to clarify that with, do you mean like if I – are you calling lease rent? Like yeah. Like I might rent it for two weeks or something, but you're talking like a three-year lease? No, no. Yeah. Well, then I discovered by dropping it into Excel that the type of vehicles that I actually wanted to drive cost me less money, period,
0: mm-hmm.
1: no matter what. And it was like, well, I don't want to own that vehicle. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to own that vehicle. Now, my yeah. Challenger, I wanted it, so I went out and I paid for it. Boom, done, yeah. right? That was yeah. a different scenario. Yeah. But if you're driving, you know, Toyota 4Runners – you, you, there's, there's so much value holding those vehicles. Right. Right. I actually worked it out with a spreadsheet to where if I decided to buy it at the end of the three years, I was still ahead over buying it for financing or cash. Wow. Well, yeah. then you don't. I don't care how you feel. Right. And I think yeah. a lot of times that's what gets in our way as we start thinking about how we feel. Like, yeah. I don't think your emotions and your feelings are unimportant. Mm-hmm. I think that they are less important and yeah. I don't think you can properly manage and control them unless you know the logic first. So, like, yep, to me, yep, yep, yep. if it's more than a thousand bucks, it goes in Excel somehow. Right. And I get yeah, like, yeah. I look at it like a freaking CFO. And then now my emotions are allowed to speak.
0: Right. But I, yeah. It's like emotions I, I do the same shut thing.
1: up. You shut well, up emotions, I, yeah, shut up sometimes, desires, yeah. right? sometimes the tires. Right. Tires and emotions irritate. are great for the income, they're terrible for the spending. Yeah. Desire yeah. and emotion is like if I can get it, like if I can get my vision big enough, I can like, I can like work so much harder than I thought I could. Like my vision for TSP was, like I'll work from home, I'll have a bunch of fish tanks in my office, I'll hang out and talk to people, it'll be great. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. so, I was willing to like get up at three o'clock in the morning, yeah, and do a show in a car, yeah, because that 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 emotion was so high and it was worth That's doing true. that way. But on the other side of the balance sheet, on the outflow, emotions are thy enemy.
2: Yes. Yeah. And I, I've, I've probably irritated my wife a couple of times with this, but <laughs> when it comes to decision making, I'm like, let, let's parse the decision out into its parts, finances being one of them. And let's come to the, the conclusion that optimizes it, whether we do that or not, separate thing. But for example, like to buy the car, let's look at the financial part of it only. How much, how long do we finance? Do we not, whatever. And that way we at least know what we think the right answer is financially. And then if you want to go back and be like, let's be emotional about this, that's fine. But it's worthwhile to actually split those decisions up and not have it all, you know, muddled together like spaghetti. So I I totally agree in looking at the finance part. It doesn't mean you have to do it. You know, maybe sometimes you make a suboptimal decision because you just want to do that. That's fine. But at least know the the financial answer first. Yeah. It was interesting too with the car bit because um and you're talking about financing or not when we first started this journey my wife and I we're going to pay for cash for everything you know the house yeah. and the cars and all this stuff and we we ended up buying a car recently it didn't pay cash even though we could yeah because like you said it, it just didn't make sense financially anymore um and so the way it happened was we'd been driving the same you know old minivan for a decade plus and i'm doing my normal stock research and this is where some of these things kind of like permaculture one plant benefits another plant, benefits another plant. There's a synergistic effect. So, because I'm researching stocks, you see other things in the data before it's in the normal popular news. So, I'm reading this stock stuff and, and annual reports and whatnot 10Ks, 10Qs, and I start hearing about chip shortages, chip issues, you know, silicon issues. Left and right, and this is way before it's in the news. Yeah. And so what I, I then I go look at Micron and Intel and the CEOs of these companies and what they're saying in the the quarterly report, and they're saying this is years long process before yeah. this thing gets resolved. And so it was within the week. I went to my wife. I said, "We're buying a new car," and she's like, "What? You know, for me, yeah. this is out of left field." Josh does not. I buy can't
1: get two car. haircuts a month, and now we're going to buy a car. Exactly. I cut my, do, my own right? hair, you know.
2: Well, yeah. um, so anyway. But the reasoning was, um, hey, we've got this old car, and if this thing breaks, if you got you know a high net worth individual, accredited investor, whose single car breaks, and now there's part shortages and supply chain issues, that's stupid. That's not responsible. Yeah. So we yeah. need to get something new, and we need to lead turn all these shortage issues. So you know, we went in the next day, drove a car around, met our needs. I was like, we'll take it. And then when it came down to the buying it part. And I looked at leasing a little bit too. In our particular decision, we decided to finance it, which was very odd because we said we'd never do that again. Yeah. But based on you know the credit check and everything else, the interest rate's like a percent. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, I've got dividend income that can cover a car payment. And inflation is at, you know, actual CPI, the baked CPI, not the real the 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 Jerome Powell CPI is running six, seven percent. I thought I, I can't see taking well, the money and paying it here's how i feel about
1: a debt on something that you need which was the situation you're in is okay okay and if the interest rate on that debt is 1% and you have the money and you can't make more than 1% on your money during the term of the loan you don't deserve the money <laughs> that's true. right thought, like thought, you should be able to yeah. do better than 1% gain on your money right. so so that would be an example of that's that's not an because the emotion in me when I go back to old me anyway is no no pay cash have no payment no. like that that's the emotion to me but the logic in me is which way is the best financial way to do this right. in the current situation that I'm in based on my current situation yep. right like if it's the in like yeah. w- when I was 20 years old and I bought my first brand new vehicle I had payments because I had to right. When we got our, you know, like our third forerunner, I, I had payments because I, I took the option. Right. right? Like I had again, optionality. I, do this, I can do this four ways. I can pay cash. I can do a finance person uh, thing. I can do a short-term or a long-term lease. I I can do any one of these things, and they all go into Excel. And then yep. all that, like, again, bad emotion. Go away. Sit down. Yep. You know, bad yep. emotion. And, and then you make that logical choice. And, right. The least will always win, which is why the numbers always must go in the spreadsheet.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? And like I said, or, or you put it all in the spreadsheet and you go, hey, the rational financial thing to do is X, but I really want to, you know... I want to exercise my option. Yeah, I, I want to rent a convertible and drive down Highway 1 on the coast and have a good vacation. It doesn't make sense, but I, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. We already
1: did. You're going to own nothing and be happy. Uh, I thought this was an interesting little comment. Learning things today I could have used two years ago. That's all of us. Whenever oh. you do learn it, you wish you learned it earlier. And it's the tree thing, right? Like the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Next best yeah. time is today.
2: Yeah, 100%. I, I feel the same way. I think about stuff in my own life all the time. Like, golly, if I was such an idiot 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's so just life. That's just life.
1: I don't know if you'll have any comments on this, but I made a comment in the comments uh, the text comments while we were going about Nassim Taleb and uh, I basically said I lost a lot of respect for him over uh, what I call feigned ignorance in the Bitcoin black black paper. Yep. And I was asked for more nuance and I'm not going to go long on it because this is not a Bitcoin show. But in his black paper, his chief criticism of Bitcoin was transaction speed and transaction capacity and he really Lightening. hammered on it over and over and over with lightning. complete, <laughs> completely, totally ignoring the Lightning Network. So if I thought Taleb was a guy with an IQ of about 98, and he wasn't smart, and he wasn't informed, and he was just wrong, I wouldn't care. I wouldn't care that he had the influence, even. I would be like, whatever, like you're just wrong. This man, I would probably estimate his IQ somewhere between 160 and 180. Right. He's one of the smartest people I've ever read. I do not believe for one second that he's unaware of lightning or what it does or its abilities. And yeah. it wasn't like he wrote it five years ago, right? This is a very, very recent thing. And he's continued a malicious intellectual attack on Bitcoin for the same reasons, continuously, like almost daily on mm-hmm. Twitter and continues to ignore lightning network. Right? right. So to me, that's again, that's not even about a dis. If he said, I don't believe lightning will work. Okay, fine. I disagree, but you have a right to have your opinion. Ignoring a thing as though you don't know about it in order to attack a thing because you know the thing you're ignoring destroys your argument. When you're that smart, I, I see it as malicious. And so when yeah. you're malicious, that's different than differing opinions. So I, I, I have tremendous lack of respect now because I have so much respect for his, in, for his, for his uh, intelligence.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I can see your point there, and I guess I've just come to the conclusion that Your heroes eventually disappoint. If you want to call that person a hero, and and you have to know that we're all human. Yeah. And and take take what you can learn. So there are things I've mentioned Buffett a couple of times because I've learned so much from him. Sure. But there are things about him that I I don't agree with, and I think how's he missing the boat on this, or what's going on? Maybe Bitcoin is one of them. Yeah. Um, But the fact of the matter is, if you start in 1960, whatever, with his shareholder letters and you read them all the way up to today, you are going to come away with a really solid education uh, on investing and finding. There's a wealth of information out in the public domain. So, and the same with Taleb, you know, like I watched during the pandemic, some of the stuff he was talking about and the spread of the virus. And like, I finally just stopped because I was like, it's wrecking this guy I've learned so much from. Um, And I just have to leave it at that. I've learned a tremendous amount from him um, in terms of, uh, you know, how things scale and um, the fragility concept and just the, basically that whole perspective on uh normal phenomenon and financial and other phenomenon that are, that operate in extremes um, that don't yeah. operate like normal data. So anyway,
1: no, I would say his work on like being any fragile law is exceptional. Uh, one more thing to add on why I have this, feeling is he actually started out all in on crypto. He was big on the Bitcoin cash side of things. And oh. when he got that up the butt, all of a sudden, like crypto is back. Right. Yeah. So it's like, who knows? yeah, anyway, uh, this is interesting. We kind of just hit this with the whole car thing, but mortgage payment versus investment. I think this is another place like I'm all for the paid off house. Right. Dave, Dave Ramsey, the paid off house has replaced you know, the status symbol in America of, of the Rolls Royce or whatever. But there is the same thing we said, like, there's a there is an opportunity cost in locking up capital. Yes. Right? And I think there's a balance there. And I don't think it's a zero-sum binary mortgage no. payment or – like, what? how many options do you have? Because having a paid-off house and plenty of capital for investment and income generation is better than having a leveraged house in the same scenario. Yep. But – The more you have as a buffer, the more, what is, I guess the ratio of leverage is the thing. Like if your ratio of leverage against your total net worth is 10%, that's, that's a pretty safe position to be in. Yeah. 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 If your leverage ratio to your wealth is like a hundred percent, like all your wealth
2: is leveraged. Right. Yeah. Then that's not a safe position to be in. Yeah. Uh, The reason I went down that path, it was probably a variety of factors, but paying the house off, which is not always the right answer. But going back to accounting, people understand income statement pretty well. People understand balance sheet pretty well. But the cash flow statement is probably the least talked about, least understood. And the reason I say it's important is you can be a, a cyclical company with a lot of assets, solid balance sheet, and you can get in a cash crunch situation that could kill the company. So because your plant property equipment is illiquid and you can't sell it for a good price, if you screw up the cash flow part and you have fixed expenses, a hiccup can damage you. So taking it back to the house thing, for me, the reason I did it that way was, hey, if I can take all those fixed costs and drive them almost to zero, then almost any amount of free cash flow sustains me. Yep. But again, I'll say, it's not one size fits all. If you told me, hey, you could buy... I don't know, you know, Apple stock for 10 cents a share, yeah, you know, or pay your mortgage payment. I'm buying the Apple stock for 10 cents a share, right? Because that's ridiculous. Yeah. It's so cheap. Yeah. But if you're the kind of person who doesn't understand why you would buy the Apple stock instead, you don't really understand what you're doing anyway. And maybe it's best just to go with the safe decision of putting in an index fund or, or pay extra on your house or something. Um, Agree.
1: And like you you're in a different situation now. Let's say that you decided you wanted a third property. Yeah. Right? Now you have to look at your capital and say, do I really want to pull that much capital and 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 buy this house to rent 100%. it and
0: create a cash yeah. flow,
1: right? Now you're probably in a situation where if I was going to develop a third property, I'm probably going to use at least some
2: leverage to develop that property. Yeah, probably so. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You're going to use other
1: people's money to fund the debt, right? Like that's yep. Or you're not going to, if you can't, then what if you can't? Well, then you don't do it. Like that's right. The other thing is like, don't get it. Don't get addicted to an idea where you become committed to the idea as though you've like you, like you joined the military, right? You didn't join the military. You don't have to do this yet, but there is a point where you've committed and be sure before you do. Um, best advice for vetting tenants.
2: I don't really have anything special there, honestly. Um, I have a property management company and, and they do all the vetting. Oh, there you go. Um, So I think the only thing that I could add there would be I prefer less turnover to well-vetted tenants. That'll seem a little weird. So in in military circles, guys who rent their houses talk about, oh, you want to rent a military because they're squared away and they're disciplined and they're not going to trash a house because they get in trouble with their job, whatever. So they say this stuff whether that stuff is true or not, put it aside. The point is the military moves its people every two, three years. And so what that causes is turnover. And there's only so fast you can turn a property over. So if say in a 12 month, every 12 month period, I lose a month to turnover, you know, that is what a 7%, something like that cut into my income. Plus I'm going to have to do like minor repairs and painting and that kind of stuff that's further going to drive into my income. So the first set of tenants we had by pure accident, they were there five years. So they, whether they were good or not, we had no turnover. So, you know, you were talking about 70 months or whatever it was of just solid income generation. And yeah. so I guess that's all I would say is I, I would lean toward longer tenant stays than than really vetting because you can only do so much there, credit check and whatever.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a great answer. Um Here's an interesting one. I think this is where we get into a place where a lot of people don't really understand tax law. Um, Bonnie says Would you ever sell a second home outrider? Is it always wise to do a 1031 exchange, even if you do not want to be a landlord or to uh, house renters? I want to start off with this one. This 1031 exchange is used to sell a lot of real estate investing courses. <laughs> and I believe it's still the number that you can make on real estate for a married couple if you've held the property more than two years is like a half a million dollars a, a year. And it doesn't yeah. matter if it's a second home. It doesn't yeah, matter a- that it's a second home. It's, 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 it, it, it's when you start doing a lot of maneuvering and short term roll-ups of property and all that you need to get this more sophisticated uh, tax strategy involved. Uh, it also, also often hits people that are doing larger properties or multi tenant properties because you're looking at properties that by their very nature blow that cap, yeah. right? And, yeah. and maybe they're not held for the duration. But if it's owned by you personally, and you've had – I think the bogey's two years.
2: Yeah. So I think what you're talking about is uh, the rule of two out of the last five. So yeah. if it's owner-occupied for two years out of yeah. a rolling five-year period, and you sell that house, you can sell it as owner-occupied. And then your capital gains treatment gets that exception of, I think married filing jointly of like a half million and that half million's on the gain too. It's not the yeah, half million on the house. gain. Exactly. Right. So, so you, if you can have a 400000 dollar house, a four hundred thousand dollar house, it appreciated $800,000. You yeah. still don't have a half a million gain. So you're good. So I would and say, and only, most let me people, add to that. Oh, Unless
1: sorry. you're doing income from a strategy of like, you've been putting on your taxes as this is a rental property. You don't prove anything about the occupancy because I've owned two properties for a pretty long period of time and neither one of them was a rental property. Right. So yep. I don't know. Out of the last 10
2: years, which I don't know, I lived in both of them, like right. there's zero questions asked. Yeah. I'm not going to get into that too much on a public yeah. podcast, but uh, the other piece of it though, and this is a niche thing, but for anybody who's listening, it might be military. If you are moved due to orders so like yeah. the government orders you to move then what happens is talk to a tax accountant for everything yeah. I'm about to say but yeah. a tax return or whatever um but you you get a 10 year extension to that two of the last five rule mm. um where you can still treat it as owner occupied okay so that that's helpful to somebody cuz now you're looking at as long as maybe 13 years since you've lived in a property and you could still sell owner occupied. And then to circle back around to that original question about 1031, I'm open to the possibility. But, um, as you said, um, I think a lot of people hype it too much, get too caught up in it. And there's a lot of allowance for real estate in the tax code normally that for most of us, we just don't even need to go there. Yeah. But, yeah. but yes, if, if I can save a whole bunch of money on taxes by 1031ing, I will. Just understand if
1: you do it, you're not avoiding the tax, you're deferring the tax. Like eventually if you cash out at the end, it all goes in and it all accumulates from the beginning. That's um, so yeah, there's that. I think maybe the heart of the question so for me, I would say that Bonnie shouldn't do this because when you say, but I don't want to be a landlord, well, then don't be a landlord, right? That, that's, that's there for me. But the harder question really is if you have a second home, should you sell it? And. I kind of want to be a landlord with the second home unless I know exactly what I'm going to do with the capital I extract. Yeah. Or if it's, let's it's a house that's not desirable enough that I can really make money on it with a management company and it's far away and it's logistically messy. Yeah. To be a landlord. But I, I see that as an income producing asset and I don't like selling income producing assets.
2: Yeah. I, I don't like that either. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think everything in investing is, Is, um, opportunity cost. In other words, do, is there a better opportunity out there? And that's how I kind of weigh everything. So you got your top thing, your most favorite thing, the thing you think is going to pay off the most. And then every other investment decision that comes along is getting compared to that. And if it doesn't at least present as good an opportunity as that top thing, well then you've immediately filtered it out and it's a good uh, filtering method. So if the house is working, um, it's a higher threshold for other things to meet to say, I need to liquidate the house and go into this other thing. Um, yeah. And then I think a lot of us too, we think we are better than we are at timing of markets. I hear a lot of people right now like, Oh, the bubble's about to burst and I'll sell as it goes down or whatever. I'm not saying you can't understand markets and time and do, and do whatever you, you, I'm not saying that, but most of us are really just not that good at it. Um, so like point in case, the first stock I ever bought was, uh, in 1997, I was in high school about Starbucks yeah. and I just held it ever since, right? Based yeah. on the simple premise that caffeine's addictive and even broke people pay for it. That yeah. was the thesis. And, you know, that's like 100x, you know, since then. And the dividend payment is more than the cost basis on the original stuff. Now, oh, wow. all along that journey of 20 some plus years, there were moments where I could have said, boy, this doesn't really make sense. And it's the crash of 08. And I don't know. And I think this, I tried to outsmart things but I had a compounding machine so you just got to leave it alone yeah um, so sometimes yeah. we just try not to outsmart ourselves and
1: see, that's an interesting thing that's a that's a security but it also at this point is an income producing asset oh yeah and yeah yeah so um interesting quick question here at the end protecting homestead assets against debtors like end of life hospital stays for one spouse I mean to me that's that's why we carry life insurance is, 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 is an answer I have on that to one degree.
2: Um, thoughts. Um, I, am not an expert in that area, so I don't want to get the, I'm an expert on everything fallacy. Um, Yeah. so I, I, I don't know. I don't have anything good. Um, I would say that like that is discussion with,
1: you know, really an attorney. That's an attorney. Like, your financial advisor, if you have a financial advisor or a fin- investment manager, uh because if you're smart, you have an investment manager, not a financial advisor. Um uh, just saying. And uh I happen to know a good one. And anyway, uh you that person can help with that, but that's more uh, you have this conversation with the attorney who's an expert at planning for it, and then the financial person says and here's an instrument that can be added or combined with that. And then the tax attorney and that's where you start bringing the team in managing yep. your wealth together. Right. You, you have different people for different things. I might go and one day have a, a, a general surgeon do I get in a wreck and they take my my spleen out. and They did a great job. And if later on in life I need a heart transplant, hopefully I never do. But if it did, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to the person that did the spleenectomy. Because they're not a cardiothoracic surgeon. And cardiothoracic yeah. surgery is a specialty, right? Yeah. You know, so, yeah, I, I'm not going there. Yeah. I'm sorry. I can't can't offer a lot there.
2: All right. Well, hey, tell, tell people how they can learn more about what you're doing. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a big social media presence or anything. I've, in the last, I don't know, six months or so, started a small podcast on the side. Um, I will have to say it is extremely niche. It's not going to appeal to a large swath of an audience. Um, and it was really created to scratch my own itch. You talk a lot about function stacking, um, yeah. I think on your podcast. And it was kind of that in mind. So I do a lot of research on my own of stocks. And then I thought in the area that I'm dealing with, with this podcast, it's uh, mostly spinoffs and, and corporate mergers and that kind of thing. And, there are many of those that happen every year, just spinoffs alone. You might have 50 in a year, publicly traded companies that do a spinoff. And so it's hard to keep up on. And so first I started looking, is there anybody out there who's summarizing what's going on with these things and giving me a starting point? And I couldn't find that. And so for the fact that I'm doing my own research and just share it with anybody out there, that was the intent of it is, you know, I look at, uh, one of the ones I've covered quite a bit is a bankruptcy, uh, and slash spin off Garrett Motion's little turbocharger company. So I was doing the research on my own, which was extensive. And now I just put it out in like a ten minute blurb, and that way somebody else could listen to it and go, "Oh, this sounds appealing. I'll learn more." Yeah. Or no, I'm not even going to waste my time. And it kind of, it kind of time. It's a time hack. It saves them the effort, uh, perhaps. Um, and so anyway, special situation investing is the name of the podcast. And then for an email. Uh, special situation investing at proton mail. I can get you the, the email address for the show notes, but uh, again though, that's very niche because it's a specific area of stocks that I like to focus on because they're fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's it.
1: Well, I've got the link and I'll make sure it's in the uh, notes. That'll be available <laughs> at the survival podcast.com about one hour for right now, because somebody will click the link in the video notes below and go, it doesn't work. Well, we're not done yet. <laughs> like You got to give me some time. So, uh, I, I really appreciate you being with us today, man. Uh, this is a great discussion. Uh, another long form podcast today, man, almost two hours. So I appreciate your time. And, uh, and, uh, thanks for being with us today, Josh. I appreciate your time as well. Thank you. With that, let's go ahead, wrap things up. Really enjoyed that conversation. Uh, I love when I have a guest and, i'm just doing the interview and i'm just having the conversation and i'm just enjoying it and then i look at the time uh on on the like the time that's running on the interview and i'm like holy shit it's like an hour and 40 minutes already and i'm not really ready to end it but i know like okay it's it's getting there that means that the conversation is great when the conversation is great everybody learns from it i think josh is a great dude and i really think that it uh Would be worth you at least checking out his podcast, and there is a link in the show notes. Also, hey, guys, you know you can always help support this podcast, really, in a super easy way. Just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That is TSPAS, T-S-P-A-Z, T-spaz.com. I have items of the day pretty much every day, uh, and I also have a whole catalog of products I've reviewed. There's over 400 products in the TSPAS catalog. Every one I own, I bought. I'd buy it again, or I wouldn't recommend you buy it. There's even a few in there that are still good, but uh, I found better. And if you go read the old reviews, I didn't take them down. It just says, you can still buy this, but here's the better one. Uh, I just think that's the way to do things. Instead of saying, here's three things. Any one of them you want. Well, what good is that? That's not a recommendation. I try to recommend the best thing in each category for you. Today's item of the day, though, is like a special announcement type one. It's not an in-depth review. It's the DeWalt cordless jigsaw, and it's the bare tool version, meaning it's for a person that already has the DeWalt tool platform. You already have your batteries and chargers and other equipment. You're just missing a jigsaw. It is on sale today for 109 bucks. 39% off, normally $179. That is a hell of a deal and this is the top end brushless tool, not the, the lower end uh, model of it. The uh, DeWalt uh, it notoriously will go on sale early on Amazon and then a lot of times by the time the show goes live, it the sales over it's like they sell enough and they take the sale away, and there's no rhyme, reason, or logic behind it. They're not like deal of days where it says you've got eight hours left or whatever. They just It just comes and goes. Today, it actually went down an extra dollar. I don't understand it, but it did, so it's actually 108 bucks right now, 107 and some change. I don't know how long it'll last or when it'll go away or why it made that small movement, but if you need to add this to your power tool collection, I would I would get it today. And if you want to make sure you don't miss opportunities like this, because I do have stuff come out, not all the time, but, you know, probably twice a month I come on like a super deal and I put it out as an item of the day or a special alert, and then by the time I do the show and do this segment, it's it's gone. Like it's either out of stock or the price went back up. Get on the Survival Podcast Telegram channel, and then you will know within seconds of that item going up that it is available. Because the TSP effect is real, and... If I see something come along and I want it, I have learned my own lesson, and I buy it before I tell you about it. I run active pricing alerts on everything in the catalog, and when something hot comes along like this, I know about it, and i let you know. So consider getting on the channel. If you don't like groups and everybody banging bang your phone all the time and stuff like that, the channel won't be that. You'll get four or five at the most dings from me a day. Uh, if you decide you want to mute it, you hit mute. It's like text messaging. That's what Telegram's really all about, and uh, you'll know about these things, and you won't miss anything. Uh, you can learn more at thesurvivalpodcast.com forward slash get social. Also, join the MSB if you haven't yet. That's all I'll say about that today. With that, we'll wrap up. I'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow, we'll be doing another episode of Bitcoin Breakout, and we will have no less than Natalie Brunel on the show. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast.
0: Let show you a better way.